He says, I am the God who blots out, who blots out. During the war, the various vehicles in England had to have all their lamps dimmed. And so they took pieces of black cardboard and paper and sticky stuff, and they cut crosses in the center of these pieces of paper and cardboard, and they stuck them on the headlights of the various motor vehicles and bicycles and buses and vehicles that traveled in the streets. And these lights hardly were one candle power. They hardly lit anything. It was curious to see cars wandering around looking to, to find where the road was. It's kind of interesting to see how people discovered where the road was. But somehow they traveled. Even bicycles that had their own lamps, they had to have hoods on them so that the light would only shine just about four or five feet in front of the bicycle. We almost blotted out the light that was in the country. There were great drapes that we pulled across the windows. There were drapes that we pulled across doors. And then we had wardens, air raid wardens, that went around and they would shout and bash on your door and say, you are showing a light. Turn that light off. And so when the enemy planes were overhead, hopefully, they saw no lit target and all was dark. That was the idea. We blotted out the light that we had. In fact, light became sin. It was a sense in which if you showed a light, then you would get bombed or machine gunned. And so the airplanes would swoop on you and you hoped not to shine a light. God says this, I blot out <clears throat> excuse me, all of your transgressions. I blot them out. They cannot be seen at a distance. They cannot be seen up close under scrutiny. <coughs> they are blotted out, removed. And so complete is the removal of them that they are remembered no more. The word goes on, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father has sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. This is a tremendous tirade against Israel. A tremendous word that is directed against the Israelites. But it has its application in the day in which we live. If you look at verses 22 through 24 you will discover there that there, are, there is a very dark background. But suddenly verse 25 comes in like a diamond with, that is many faceted and it sparkles in the light. It's a wonderful verse. It's a verse that seems to sparkle in the midst of rather dull scripture. Scripture that is depressive. Scripture that is overcoming and overshadowing and overpowering. For the word says that the cattle of thy burnt offerings have been put back because they've not been brought to God and he's disregarded them. And I, and I have not see, caused 
thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. I haven't demanded, says God, but you haven't bothered with me. Then he says, but I, I have blotted out thy transgressions. I have caused a great blackout to come right across eternity with regard to your transgressions. We have a God who is not indifferent to sin. He is not complacent about sin. We cannot, and remember this, we cannot sin with impunity. God is just and holy, and sin is never treated lightly. His provision is forgiveness, and His provision is enormous. I will not, He says here, remember thy sins. I will not. But notice He blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Very often, we somehow think we can make a bargain with God. Lord, if you will do this, I will follow you. If you'll do that, I will be nice to you. Lord, if, if you will help me, I'll help you. I'll give you all my ability to be, to be enthusiastic on your behalf if you will just help me with this, that, or the other. And we sort of bargain with God. And I want to tell you those sort of bargains, as far as the Bible is concerned, are not very biblical. As far as the Bible is concerned, they're not very right. And we should be very much more careful in using such phraseology with our Father. Our Father only asks us that we may remember that our sins are blotted out. That He doesn't deal with sin lightly, He deals with it passionately. When He forgives, He forgets according to the Word of God. And He is the only one that can. As I have said in previous studies of the Word, He is the only person in the universe that has ever been that can not only forgive, but He can also forget. So many people think they're God-like. You'll hear them. You'll hear them on the radio and television interviews. You'll read about them in the magazines and the media. And they say it's only right to forgive and to forget. Let's forgive and forget. I hear Christians saying, can't we forgive and forget? We will never forget. In fact, God never meant us to forget. He wanted us, for instance, to remember His, the Son, our Lord's death until He come. He wanted us to remember all kinds of things in the, in the cathedral at Coventry in the middle of England, which was dreadfully burned down in 1940 during an air raid that killed many people. They took some of the beams that were charred from the superstructure of the cathedral and they nailed two of the beams together to form a cross. And underneath was written, Father, forgive them. We sing the song, lest we forget Gethsemane. We mustn't be forgetting, we say. And so our memory on the one hand is trained to remember, God causes us to remember, yet we talk so glibly about forgiving and forgetting. 
apart from the fact that we will not forget, mostly because our self-pity will not allow us to forget injustices. We will not forget the odd experience. We will not forget the dreary travel. <coughs> we will not forget the things that happen to us. <clears throat> we may forgive the governments that cause it. We may forgive the personalities involved in it. But we will not forget the experience. And so we need to draw closer to our Father in heaven. For the person who speaks is God. And he is the Father. And listen to his words. There are three things about him that we should come to know. First, he is the one who made us, and he made us for himself. He didn't make us for others to enjoy. He made us first for himself. And the word of God is that, it, that we are for him. Look at verse 7 of this same chapter. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God is speaking of us, and we are made for his glory. And that's why the man who refuses to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior is out of kilter with God. He is out of step with the Almighty because he doesn't understand that though his life is not a very glorious thing, God made him for God's glory, not for his. We should try to understand that. Look at verse 21. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. I did this for me. <clears throat> if you go back into verse 25, you will see I, that he, I, have, I, I am he that blotteth out thy, thy transgressions for mine own sake. He's not doing it for you. He is doing it for himself. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot look upon the horrors of man. And so he says, I change you. I blot out your transgressions that I may look at you, that I may love you, that I may approach you, that I may embrace you, that I may hold you, that I may keep you, that you may be mine forever and forever. It's an interesting and wonderful thing we are, he has cre created us not for his own sake, but for his glory. To think that you and I are a little piece of the glory of God. He says he calls us from where we are to make us a bride beautiful, so that as a beautiful bride we may be married to his son. So he blots out our transgressions. Look at the second thing. He is the one against whom we have sinned. If you look at verses 22 and 24. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Let's look for a moment at our prayer life. What's your prayer life like right now? Don't answer out loud, but answer in your heart. Are you spending specific times and reasonable amounts of time in prayer? You have not called upon me, O Jacob. You haven't spoken to me. If we see a lover that we love, and the lover doesn't even speak to us, but sticks their nose in the air and walks by, 
We are terribly wounded. We are hurt within our soul. It's a curious thing. We complain bitterly that we have been snubbed. But look at this verse 22. Jacob snubbed God. Israel snubbed God. Neither would have any part with him, their father. Look at verse 24. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy, of, of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. It's a shattering piece of Scripture. The Word tells us here that though this is especially to Israel, it applies to us as well. For there is none of us that is without sin. God is the offended one. The psalmist says, I have sinned against thee, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Sin is not a light matter. And we can't treat it lightly. We can't just sweep it under the carpet and hope it will go away. We have an attitude towards sinful pleasure and sinful things and sinful practices, and we naturally bend towards them. It's easy to sin. It's not difficult. But that's because we are yet in this flesh. We are yet in this, in this bondage. We are yet, and there is the Spirit inside us warring to overcome the Spirit, and says the Scripture, the, but the the, 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 the flesh is warring against the Spirit to overcome it. And the flesh often wins. Often. You know there's a thing about coming to the Lord's table. It's easy for me to say as the pastor, if you've been born again, if you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to sit around this table, you come. We encourage you. It's easy for me to remind all of us in the congregation that if we eat and drink unworthily, we eat and drink unto our own damnation. But let's examine that just for a minute as a slight aside. This is from 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 21 through about 29, 30. And let's just examine that for a moment. Maybe it's time now for us to come to the place where we start saying, if I have come with planned sin in my heart, I am eating and drinking unworthily. Let's just, for example, just for example, let's imagine that you have, through the telephone, just before coming around the Lord's table, the juiciest piece of gossip you've heard for a while. And you thought that you would phone your friend, not to gossip, but to tell them to pray about this. But when you phoned, you couldn't reach them, the line was busy. And then you come in, and it's communion Sunday, and you sit around the Lord's table. If you planned before that service to pass on that information, and you eat and you drink, you eat and you drink unworthily, It's that simple. It's a tragic sort of thing, but we Christians do it. Let's say that, <clears throat> because this is kind of topical at this time of year, 
Let's say that Saturday you were working so hard on your income tax returns and you learned by rereading the rules and regulations how you could snitch a little here and fluff a little there. But you didn't get it all done on Saturday, and so you intend to finish it on Sunday. And you come to the Lord's table working out how you can not tell all the truth on your income tax return. And it's communion Sunday, and we sit around the Lord's table. My dear friend, if that's in your heart, if you have planned sin in your heart, you eat, you drink unworthily. And from the pulpit to the pew, we are all guilty. Now let us come carefully to the communion table with no planned sin. And that sort of takes a lot of fun out of life, doesn't it? Because some of us enjoy being miserable. Some of us enjoy being fastidious. Some of us enjoy the problems that we are into. And we just enjoy them. Look hard and look deep into your own soul, never mind the person around you. Look hard, look deep and understand it's against God we sin. He says, I want you to come around this table. I want you to remember the Lord. He doesn't say, I want you to remember the Savior. He says, I want you to remember the Lord. The Savior is the one that saves us. He says, you've been saved, else you couldn't come around this table. And so I want you to fellowship with the Lord. And with the Lord, you have no planned sin. Maybe you've come around the Lord's table intending tomorrow to cheat your employer or to cheat your employee or to cheat your customer. And when you sit around the Lord's table with that in your heart, even though it only be partly formed in your mind, it's against the Lord, not the Savior. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about people toppling away from their salvation and into hell. <coughs> Excuse me. But I'm talking very forcibly and very pointedly at you and I, who are Christian, who sit around the Lord's table with pious eyes and pious looks and phrases and cliches that all marry and make us sound so evangelically correct. While underneath, there is a suppuration going on that dishonors the Lord. Look at the third thing. He is the only one who can save us from it. Look at verse 11. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There is no excuse. There is no way out except by me, says God. I have brought you salvation. I have brought you the answer. I have brought you the cleansing. I have brought you the power. I have brought you the might. I have brought you the victory. 
Jesus had a story. His story went something like this. There was a man that was given five talents. There was a man that was given two talents. And there was a man that was given one. The man that had five invested that five and made himself ten. The man that had two invested the two and made himself four. The man that had one said, I know that my, my overseer, my Lord, is austere so that I don't lose what he has given me. I will take it and wrap it in a napkin and bury it. My dear people, we're not talking of the gifts of the Spirit. We're talking about the abilities given to us, the talents that God has given to us. And if you've got your talent, be it anything you like to mention, whether it's playing an organ, a piano, singing, whether it's speaking, reading, whether it's working in the woodyard, whether it's working as an electrician, as a carpenter, as a candlestick maker or a baker, or whether it's an investments officer or whatever your employment is, if you bury that and you don't make capital upon it, Jesus will have something to say to you. Christians walk around saying, I must be poor. Christians walk around saying, by, by attitude, if not by actual words, I must, because I am a humble Christian, I must live in very humble circumstances. Well, if that's your, your way of living, that's fine. But God has given you a talent, and he says, capitalize upon it. Now, when that is understood, you will understand the next step that Jesus was teaching. He was teaching something terribly practical. You have one diamond, trade it for one twice the size. That's what he was saying. Now, he was using that principle that is very logical and very, very attractive to the majority of the mercenary minds of people. And he was using that story so that men and women would understand that they are given salvation. Now, live it. You've been given the grace of God. You've been saved from sin's degradation. You've been lifted up out of the horrible pit. Now sing the song. Be victorious. Live for Jesus Christ as well as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you not seen the simplicity of that story? Have you not applied it to your life? Sure. We are not to promote ourselves. Sure, that's understood. But to everything we have that can be used for the glory and used for the honor and used for the establishing of our Lord Jesus in the hearts of men and women, we are to use to our greatest capacity for as much as we shall live. There is a cliche, but it's a funny and an interesting one. And it's one that somebody cliched and coined years ago. I would rather rust out, or rather wear out, than rust out. And too many Christians are wrapped in a napkin and buried in the ground and are rusting out. There is massive talent in the majority of congregations, including, thi including this one, the talent that can reach the community, the talent that can make the house of the Lord look very beautiful, the talent that can make the things of God tremendously attractive, but we hide the talent because it will cost us too much. It's a terrifying thought. 
But that seems to be the attitude amongst a lot of us. It's frightening. He invites us to hear him and to receive his pardon. Now there's a twofold offer of God, and I mustn't get to too much preaching for fear I missed telling you all of this. So let me quickly go through this. It's so interesting and it's so important to all of us here. But this twofold offer of God is magnificent. If we come to him, he forgives and he forgets. We have all sinned in two different ways. In the first way, we have committed acts of sin. We have. We have committed those acts of sin. There's no way we can escape admitting that. We have acted in sinful manner. And then secondly, we have omitted to do those things that were pleasing to God. God has given us something that we must achieve. He has given us something that we must do. He has given us a part in His great service to perform. And we have not done it. And so we are guilty of the sins of omission and commission. And both types of sin are mentioned here. The word transgressions. If you'll look at that word as we read them, the transgressions in verse 25 and the word sins in verse 25 are not the same things. The word transgressions quite literally means that there is rebellion, lawlessness, there is revolt. The sins, in other words, of commission that we deliberately do. There is rebellion in the camp. It's a curious thing when you say to your child, help me with the potatoes, and the child says, in a minute. And you, in about an hour you say, I thought you were going to help me peel the potatoes. I'm coming. In a little while longer you say, when are you coming? I'm nearly there. In a minute I won't be long. Oh, you parents do keep on. We've all heard it one time or another. We've either heard our children say it or we remember saying it ourselves. And then the child eventually gets to the sink and the pan and collects a knife and sort of very reluctantly comes over and you say, I'm sorry, I couldn't wait, it's all done. You've missed the blessing. <laughs> About all the answer you get. But actually what happened was there was a rebellion. There was a lawlessness. There was a lack of honoring father and mother. There was a lack of following the direction of a parent. There was a great rebellion going on. There was a lawlessness. There was a revolt going on. This was a sin of commission. And then there are the sins of omission, or if you like, failure. The word sins could have been translated failures. I will not remember thy failures. It's been translated sins in the authorized version. It makes it more passionate and positive. The failures, including, which includes the idea of coming short of God's glory, missing the mark as is recorded for us in the 23rd verse of the third chapter of Romans. These are the sins of omission. Now, God's forgiveness and God's forgetfulness cover both. We do not forget another's sin, but God promises to forget. 
He blots out the record of the sin. And the word blotting out is a commercial term. It's a beautiful term. The idea is that somebody in commerce is indebted to another. And the debt is more than can be paid. And so the person says, look, you are in such a bondage with this debt, I will release you from that bondage and from the debt. And so now let me share with you, I have blotted out, I have scratched from the, from the ledger your indebtedness. And that's what's being said here. I forgive your failures. I remember no more your failures. I scratch out your indebtedness. Can you imagine the mortgager saying to the mortgagee, your house is yours. Nehemiah went into Jerusalem to, to, because he felt God was causing him to go back to Jerusalem. He found the doors torn down at the, at the gates of the, of the wall of Jerusalem. He had to do something about it. But when he went to the people, he found them depressed and a tremendous inflation was upon them. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, what's your depression? Well, we owe one another so much money. Why, I, Isaac, I went over here to Ezekiah, and I said, lend me enough for this, that, and the other. Ezekiah loaned it to me at 50%. I shall be paying that debt until I'm gone. My wife will be paying after me. My children will be sold into slavery. And Nehemiah got all worked up. He said, you can't do this to one another. This is wrong. It is right that you gain interest from your investment. It is wrong that you gain usury. It is wrong that you go beyond a fair price. Don't you do it. Now, forgive one another these mortgages. Forgive one another these indebtednesses. And let's get on building Jerusalem. And that's what they did. I have a sneaking suspicion that there are many people in our country today that would love to do it. you noticed when you loan somebody some money, they quickly can become your enemy? Have you noticed how it is that Christians that borrow money from Christians don't think they have to repay the Christian? They'll go to the bank and they'll borrow the same amount of money and they will faithfully pay it back every month. Why? I mustn't damage my credit rating. What about the credit rating with God? Have you noticed how you feel so awkward if you borrow something from someone who is a Christian and you deliberately don't pay them back on the day? You miss church that Sunday for fear they'll bump into you and say, it's time, you know, my brother, to pay me back that $10 you borrowed. Oh, I'll have it for you tonight. And then you don't get there tonight. <laughs> have you noticed how you'll say, I'll bring it faithfully next week and then you vanish. Christian brother wanted to buy a car we had. And so we agreed that he could buy it. And because he didn't have any money, we agreed very foolishly he could pay us over a hundred years or whenever it was. I've forgotten how many payments he paid, but not more than three. I think it was only two, but it could possibly have been one. And we received the money. We were a little on the broke side at the time. And then I realized that what we were doing to this man was wrong. 
We had given this man a bondage, and he was a slave to us, and we didn't want a slave. We've never had slaves, the children may be, but not real slaves. And so I wrote to him and said, this is paid in full, forget it. But have you noticed I've just told you a story that is 13 years old, and although I told him to forget it, I sure didn't. I forgave him his debt, that's all. I didn't forget it. The intricate little details I may forget, but in fact, I have remembered the whole thing. And if I get to thinking about it too much, I think he cheated me. And then if I get to thinking about that cheating me a little bit more, I think I was rather nice in giving him that car. See, I'm quite a nice fellow anyway. Now I've got problem with spiritual pride. <laughs> That's the problem of not forgetting. But God says, your sins, these indebtednesses that you have to me, I cross them out. I get the ledger, I wipe it clean. I take the blotter and I blot it right out. You don't owe a thing. Your sins, your, your transgressions, I remember them no more. Your rebellions, your lawlessness, your revolt against me, I cross it out. I wipe it from the ledger. Those sins of commission, I take them out of the ledger. Those sins of omission, I cross them out. What a precious Lord He is. What a wonderful Father. What a wonderful Lord. God's forgiveness and forgetfulness cover our sins forever. He puts them behind his back. We are told in Isaiah 38, 17. He puts them at an unmeasurable distance from him. Psalm 103 and verse 12 tells us. Even he puts them in the depths of the sea, says Micah 7 and verse 19. On what grounds does he do this? He does it on the grounds of Calvary. And Calvary is, that is the glorious place that underscores the glorious truth that is written for us in the first epistle of John and in the first chapter where he tells us that our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful he is just and He forgives our sins and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What a precious and glorious truth. Now there's a reason He gives for doing all this and with this I close. Because He loves us. There's His reason. Because He loves us and because we need Him and because we are in danger of judgment and of hell, not because there is any good in us, but because for His own name's sake, for His glory and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verses 7 through 9, rejoice in the truth, rejoice in the Word, rejoice in that wonderful expression of the apostles. He simply tells us and all who will read Ephesians these words. He says in the second chapter, 7 through 9, 
I want you to understand, says he, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his, in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, not of works, lest any man should boast, but by grace are ye saved. And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Isn't that beautiful? Thy sins and thy transgressions I will remember no more. Not because of you, but for mine own sake. What a gift. Have you received this gift of God? Have you taken hold of the understanding of this gift of God? Have you taken this gift of God within the very heart and soul of yourself? And are you free from the bondage of all this world and all its pleasure and all its wretchedness and all its sinfulness? My dear friend, there is a truth. Digest it in your heart and live it in your soul. Let's pray. Father, as we are in thy presence, we quietly ask of thee that thou wouldst speak, Lord, in this stillness as we wait on thee, that we may abide in thee. Oh, Lord, help us that we might abide silently, powerfully, easily with thee. For thy love is all other loves excelling. It is surely the joy of heaven to earth come down. O God, fix now in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. O bread of heaven, feed us now and evermore. Abide in us now that we may abide in Thee. For as we look at the world and the fearsomeness of it, as we look at our lives and the fragility of them, we recognize fast falls the even tide. O Lord, with us abide. These things we ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.